I'm Nadia Cheney. I am so excited to welcome you to the Adaptogen Podcast, where we learn the journeys, the obstacles, the obsessions, and the professional tips from facilitators all over the world. To learn more about creative facilitation, go to my on-demand facilitation platform, facilitate.toolsy.ca. That's facilitate.toolsi.ca. We'll see you there. Justice Trans is a national nonprofit based in what is colonially known as Canada. And our mission is to increase access to justice for two-spirit, trans, non-binary, and gender non-conforming people. We do that through public legal education and information programs, research, advocacy, and community building. Can we flip a coin? Let's leave it up to the universe. Oh my goodness. Okay, heads, heads we do it ourselves. Tails, we introduce each other. Okay. Tails. We introduce each other. Oh no. <laughs> okay. This is so fun. Um, the universe has decided. Okay, so I can start because you asked me to start. Uh, Kat Haynes uses she, her pronouns. Uh, she's based in Regina, Saskatchewan, which is in the prairies of Canada, right in the middle of the country. Uh, she is an incredible community advocate, a secret tech witch, um, terror reader, surprisingly a ruined reader, surprisingly to me. Um, and what else can I say about Kat? One of the most creative, passionate, uh, caring people that I've ever worked with. I don't know if this is like a, a bio <laughs> that you could actually use. Perfect. Um, yeah, I, I'll leave it there. And I would like to introduce Ty. And she likes to use all pronouns. And uh, Ty has a master's in geography and is a secret map nerd, secret population data nerd. Um, and one time uh, he came to Saskatoon and we got to meet. Saskatoon is a city near where I live. Uh, and we met up for a conference. And I had always assumed that Ty was tall, but it turns out that they're not. Um, <laughs> But actually, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but actually, Ty is one of the most considerate and empathetic, probably the most considerate and empathetic uh, manager and colleague that I've ever worked with. Um, and I think uh, when I reflect on the work that we've accomplished together um, and the relationships that we've built with one another and our team, uh, and our community. Um, I'm just like so happy and so proud to know you. Mm. I have more <laughs> to add. I have more to add. Kat also has her master's in women and gender studies from the University of Regina. Um, I didn't add your qualifications. Kat is also Justice Chen's development director, but will be moving into our ED role, where executive director role. Uh, where she's going to take the organization to the stars and beyond. 
I, that's no pressure. It's just going to happen. Like <laughs> you don't even have to try. It will just naturally happen. Uh, yeah, that's what I'll add. <laughs> All right. Well, so could we start? Um, I'd love to hear just a little bit about where each of you kind of got started in the work. How did you get interested? How long has it been? Who were your first role models or co-facilitators, anything like that? I've not done two people before, so I wonder. I can start. Yeah, okay, start. great. Ty, I'll thanks. jump in. Yeah. Uh, so I have been facilitating since around like 2015, 2016, uh, when I was in an undergrad in university and I was thrust into this, uh, coordination role where I had to coordinate like a whole week of activities for, we called it transforming McMaster. I really liked puns at the times. I, I still like puns. Anyways, um, it was a whole week of programming about uh, trans stuff at the university that I was at, which is McMaster in Hamilton, Ontario. And um, I had to put together like a whole series of workshops and never in my life have I had I really seriously put together any workshops. Uh, inevitably, they all ran way too long. I think that was my major, like initial major facilitation hurdle. Uh, but that's where I started. So I guess trend, facilitating trans stuff has been where I started and where I still am. Um, that's my well, origin story. Ty, what was what were the conditions under which someone would have you program an entire week? Um, I was. Was it your brainchild? Was this like kind of your idea? I was working at my university's Women and Gender Equity Center. And I was like the only trans person working there. Uh, so that well, it actually fell on you to do it I think at the time I also was like really keen to do it because there was it felt like there was nothing at the university and I just felt like I had to create it myself mm -hmm. um and so I actually was I like really keenly took it on I wasn't angry about it or felt like the burden was put on me um and maybe like took on more work than I should have to be honest and could have given more to my cis co-workers <laughs> And so you learned about every, everything runs long, every, <laughs> everything runs longer, time runs short. Mm -hmm. um, but that sounds like you must, I mean, if that was the biggest obstacle you encountered on your first run, it seems like maybe you found you had a taste for it. Oh yeah, I loved it immediately. I loved, ah. <laughs> yeah, of course. And you asked uh, what some of our like facilitation role models, who some of our facilitation role models were. And I didn't meet you so long after this, Nadia. I think I met you like, a year or two after this, and you immediately became a facilitation role model for me. Huh. <laughs> so I don't know how many people say that on this podcast. <laughs> it's, it's not a setup. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's nice to hear, though. That's beautiful. Thank you. Um, okay, well, maybe we'll be able to pull more of those early days out as we go, but I'd, I'd love to turn over to Kat and just hear a little bit about how you got started, too. Yeah, absolutely. I was thinking about this the other night because I was like, when did I actually start facilitating? And I thought it was about a decade ago, uh, shortly after I graduated with a bachelor's in computer science and I started a community makerspace. Um, and so I was running meetups and meetings and things like that. Uh, but just now, 
uh, I remembered that it goes back even further. Uh, it probably goes back about 20 years to when I was in cadets and learned how to develop lesson plans and facilitate classes. Um, and it's really interesting how all of those things have really built. Um, and as I got more and more involved in queer and trans activism and organizing and, and support work, um, those facilitation skills really came in handy, those like sort of formalized skills that I had learned um, to make uh, facilitating this sort of new material uh, really interesting, um, like a really interesting opportunity as I got into queer and trans organizations and started doing some education work. Mm, I love the thought of that. It's like you built your structural skills first mm -hmm. and then the content came. I wonder what it's like to facilitate at cadets. It's a very disciplined kind it of environment, is. I imagine. Yeah, it's a very disciplined and very structured environment. And uh, like you have to write and use lesson plans where you like lay things out in timed intervals. Um, and it gives you a lot of really solid skills for thinking about um, like what is the purpose of each point of your engagement with who you're facilitating with and for. Very interesting. Because I can imagine that as you get into, as we get into the question of how you facilitate safe space in, in forums, in, in focus groups, those kind of structural skills must have served you very well. Well, and as we were designing the focus groups, one of the things we had to be really considerate of was time constraints, because during our research, one of the things we found uh, when we asked broadly about accessibility um, was that participants wanted frequent breaks um, mm. every 45 minutes. Mm. Um, and so that, uh, and that they don't want to have sessions that run really, really long. And so we had to really think about what conversations do we want to have? What are the most important conversations? And how do we um, how do we encourage and facilitate those conversations in the easiest way for the group that we're working with? Wow. Okay. So both of you have brought up the question of time. And that's a particular obsession of mine, Kat. I don't know if you know that, but I'm a little bit obsessed with the question of time. So I won't, I'm not going to go straight for it because it's, because it's, but, but it is a big question that I have, and it comes up a lot in, in these podcasts, how, you know, how to balance the soft start and really having that relationship building and that, that time to deepen and get to know each other with the need for breaks, the need to not be sitting in front of a screen for too long, especially in the context of Zoom workshops and how tired people get. So maybe we'll get, we'll get into that as I really want to um, maybe ask just a couple more questions before we get into Justice Trans. Um, and what I kind of, I almost want to leap, like, so from those early days where you were either in Ty's case, just kind of thrown into the deep end and cats were maybe where you were maybe more coached into, into it from there till now, like, I'm, I'm interested in how have you seen yourselves transform as facilitators? What are some of the big, um, I don't know, ahas, 
that you've had in, in, the, in, in your more recent years? So what Kat was just talking about made me think that one of my biggest lessons in facilitation is that trying to fit in more is not better. <laughs> like, I think some of the best facilitation frameworks are really sparse and just have some goalposts that you need to hit. Uh, and then you like let the group really fill in the spaces rather than you as a facilitator. Um, so that's been from now uh, till back when I started and was obviously trying to fit way too much into my workshops. Uh, my big thing is what are really identifying what are the most important points and how do we hit them all? And that can take, Kat and I went through so many different rounds of interview and focus group guides. Um, just like cutting them down. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, cutting down the plan, cutting down the content that what you were what you were hoping to get across. Cutting down the questions. Wow. Yeah, I'd say we probably started with like twenty to thirty questions, and cut down to ten, and, or eight. I actually can't remember off the top of my head. But the less, the better, I think. I think reflecting, especially on this most recent experience of research facilitation. And we did, uh, we did feedback surveys after our focus groups. Um, and some of the feedback that we consistently received was about how even within the context of the research space that we were existing within, um, people felt this uh, like strong sense of community uh, with the other participants. And Ty and I have talked at great length about how we can ground our work in relationality. And I think one of the aha moments that I've had through this experience is um, I've always approached facilitation through a community building perspective. Um, but I think this just really kind of honed in on this idea of um, and it's it's um, it's maybe an obvious idea that we are all in relation to each other in um, in that facilitated space, and that part of the role of the facilitator uh, is not just to facilitate conversations but relationships. I don't know that it's obvious. In, I think I, I'd love to hear more about what that really means and in, in, in terms of research. Uh, so it doesn't feel extractive. So they don't feel like objects. So it doesn't feel directional. Um, I'd really like to hear how you approach that. I think, I think that that is definitely not a given. Um, but I, I wish it was. I think there's, there's a promise maybe in facilitation of that but that it's, it's not obvious in the design work. And I really hear that in what both of you are saying. The sparseness in a design, I think is 
a, it's very courageous move. And um, you have to, tr you have to trust your material so much, you know, and, and your participants, there has to be love in the room and that deep respect to, to be able to go there. I'd love, okay, so maybe, okay, let's back up for the people listening, because now I'm just in pure curiosity mode, but let's, we'll take, we'll take the listeners into account and say, okay, so what was this project you were working on together? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We uh, developed a trans-Canadian access to justice legal need assessment for two-spirit, trans, non-binary, and gender non-conforming people. So what that means uh, is we had um, a sort of two-phase research project or needs assessment or community consultation um, in which we first uh, extended an invitation to fill out a survey. Um, about um, sort of demographic information, as well as experiences with 24 different categories of legal issues that we identified. We had about 700 responses to that survey. And from those 700 responses, we oh. engaged in about um, I talked to around 60 people. We talked to around 60 people in a combination of one-on-one -on -one, uh, interviews and group uh, focus groups. Um, and then from that, we have developed uh, an enormous report that we're getting ready to release. It's very exciting um, that details some of the most common uh, themes and experiences, as well as uh, visions of a future that is um, maybe not just, but more just. Mm. And something else I wanna shout out about this project that I think was really exciting about it. Uh, like Kat said, so much of the work that we did on this was figuring out how we could make it more community-based. So a series of focus groups that we did, we did with community partners. Mm. So we did a focus group with the Edmonton Two-Spirit Society. We did one with the Black Queer Youth Collective. Uh, we did one with Rainbow Refugee. And we also did one with Elevate Equity uh, so that we were collaborating with other community-based organizations and making sure that we were working with people uh, and facilitators that were based in the communities that we were that we were talking with as well. Brilliant. So part of this work was not only us learning how to research facilitate, but also us learning how to train other people to do research facilitation. Mm -hmm. and how to build this network, mm -hmm. how to feed a network, it sounds like. How do you get 700 surveys back? What, what, did, what did you do that other people aren't doing to get that kind of response? And what's also so incredible about that is that we, Justice Trans didn't really exist as like an organization with a strong foundation until we started working there because we were the first full-time staff. Mm -hmm. So prior to Kat and I and our coworker Julian joining, it was just a volunteer-based organization with like a small board of uh, four members. And we climbed out of that to get this incredible number of responses. And it, I, I would say a huge part of it is um, an incredible network of two-spirit queer and trans organizations across the country that shared our survey call 
um, the power of social media. I do have to say that our survey results skewed younger, like our median age was somewhere around 26 to 29. So most people were younger, probably because it was all online. And aside from that, I also think uh, there's a huge lack of national two-spirit and trans research going on. People uh, felt that need. Yeah. Then people feeling the need for research even on their own behalf is very rare. The, the, the connection between community and research is, is often quite broken. Especially in communities like two-spirit and trans communities where there is a tendency towards research fatigue. Yeah. Um, a feeling of being over-researched. Uh, but I do think that there's a lack of trans people doing trans research. Right. The look, it's different looking at versus looking within. Mm -hmm. This is, it's, that's, that's, I feel emotional. That's an extraordinary response. It speaks to a need, but like you say, it really speaks to like the power of as a kind of solidarity, like a kind of a resonance in the field. Think, what were some of these questions? Oh, no, go ahead, Kat, please. Uh, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to share uh, a story. I don't remember the exact quote, but it's part of our uh, report and it's from um, a participant who was unable to vote, um, I believe because they were undocumented uh, and they expressed that uh, participating in research was one of the ways to have their voice heard um, when they were unable to have their voice heard through the democratic process. Whoa. Wow. That's an incredibly impactful statement to make. I can imagine it translating across so many different kinds of communities where a democracy built for a majority or for a documented majority is just not, not bringing voice to the table. I can't wait to read the report. What, what are some of the legal issues? Just to give people a sense if they have no idea. I mean, this is one, um, the question of, of documentation. So what else? migrant and refugee law, uh, as pertains to the question of documentation, uh, but also family law, criminal law, both addressing criminal law where someone has been accused of, of doing a crime and where someone has been a victim or a witness of a crime. Um, we also had a criminalized employment section. Uh, so people who are working in sex work or the drug trade, uh, that's, that's a legal issue. Um, what else? Disability and social assistance benefits, medical treatment, discrimination, harassment, police brutality. Housing and employment issues. Like the most sensitive topics people could possibly yeah. talk about. Yeah. And yeah, often some of the most sensitive uh, and traumatic moments of people's lives uh, were parts of our both group and one-on-one -on -one conversations. Um, and yeah, carrying the weight of that is, um, is heavy. Yeah, it yeah also... what, what did you do to protect yourselves from the vicarious trauma? We talked a lot with each other. 
we the two, you to get the two of you and, and Jillian, I imagine. Yeah. So we structured our uh we very quickly learned um that we should not engage in numerous interviews or an interview in a focus group on the same day nice if possible we learned that uh if possible within 24 hours we should debrief the conversation with somebody else um and we also developed a uh once every two weeks um support space where we would just check in uh casually as a group to talk about um, yeah, how we're carrying this vicarious trauma and how we're feeling. Um, and also I had to take a major step back from facilitation because I had taken on a lot of that vicarious trauma and just, uh, was having like a physiological reaction to preparing for interviews or focus groups. Oh, wow. And so then, and your team is so small, so that you must, that must have been hard for you to take that step back. Yeah, really hard. Uh, but we had really good conversations about it because I think one of the things our team has done really well through this project and, and probably likely through engaging with a lot of this really hard material is just build a tremendous amount of trust um, to have these intense and hard conversations when they need to happen. A lot of the, we did a lot of care work for each other. Actually, Kat and I wrote an article about it uh, in the Disability Alliance of BC's Transitions magazine, which I can send you a link. You can put it in your podcast description. Thanks. Yeah. Um, that's about how we cared for each other in the workplace. And part of that was bringing like a spiritual practice into the workplace, which was tarot. So tarot became a big part. Yeah, I know. You know how much I love tarot. So I, I do. Kat and I are big into tarot, both of us. And so a tarot practice also became an important part of our workplace culture and our trust building. Um, and it still is, but it definitely, like for before our first focus group, we drew a tarot card. Kat and I actually both drew a tarot card separately and it was the same tarot card. Um, this is an interesting tarot card for facilitation actually, because it was the, was it the five of wands? I think it was the five of wands. The five of wands depicts five people each holding a stick fighting with each other, uh, which is such an interesting card to pull before a group facilitation. And at first we were like, this doesn't lend well to a good facilitated conversation. And then through more conversation with each other about the card realized actually this presence of conflict represents you know, a lot of people sharing a lot of different opinions, which is actually the really need for our role, the need yeah, for the role, exactly. the need for the research. It represents a, yeah. Oh, it's beautiful. It's, it would be almost, it's, it's auspicious in this, and, and, but for both of you to pull it is mind blowing. Separately. Yeah. Okay. We're not yeah. going to take the hairpin turn that I'm, you know, <laughs> But but I will ask that, you know, that actually it's funny, the podcast, Yami's podcast that I posted today, we actually started by both of us drawing a card. Mm. And we both drew, drew knights, but not the same knights. But that was interesting, you know. I, I'm interested in 
going a little deeper, if you're willing, into what it means to bring spirituality into the workplace. Um, whether you brought that to the clients in any way, um, and also what did you have to negotiate in order to make that um, th thrive in a professional environment? I I'll get back to justice trans for sure, but I just love it's such an unusual thing. That's a hard question, actually. Hmm. It's a hard yeah. question because it's... Uh... It's a very uh, personal and I think difficult thing for Ty and I because of the story of how it happened. Okay, okay, thank way. you for setting, that's a, great, that's a great boundary, thank you. But would, I can tell this story if you'd like Ty, but we can also not tell it. Let's, let's try and tell it and then we can always just be like, don't include this. Absolutely. Um, because it is a really complicated story. So we, as part of this research project, worked with a group of community consultants um, to provide feedback on the, the work that we were preparing for and doing. Um, through uh, the research design phase all the way to the reporting phase. Um, and uh, at one point, um, we had a conversation with one of our community consultants. Um, who was providing feedback on our focus group questions. Um, and they were sort of like, hey, your, uh, like your research is completely devoid of spirituality. When you talk about harms, you don't talk about spiritual harms. When you talk about spaces, you don't talk about spiritual spaces. Um, and uh, so we received that feedback and, and we, uh, we had a conversation about it and uh, Ty and I are both uh, spiritual uh, people in different ways, I think. And um... I do want to say that because we're both spiritual people and like I'm a member of different religious communities too, it was really surprising to realize that we had completely... <laughs> forgotten that's the thing I don't see it in professional environments like, yeah we mm -hmm. it's just like there's this sense that this there's a divide between your spiritual or your religious self and your work and that even though the the work that we're doing is personal like people's yeah. issues are deeply personal and we're asking people personal questions we didn't bring it in but the but the tarot the spirit the why is the spirit <laughs> Why is the spirit not in the professional, especially when we're community workers and artists? Mm, mm. <laughs> right? That was nice harmony, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think personally, like for me as a Jewish person, there's so many ways that my spiritual and religious practice is not a part of the workplace. We have so many holidays during the year that I just don't get off. Yep. Um, I have friends that work at 
workplaces that are Jewish and they get like so many days off a year because we have so many holidays so mm-hmm. much nicer yeah it's as it should be but there's many ways that um culture workplace culture and like general culture communicates to me to not bring this into the workplace and that's one of them mm-hmm. yeah thank you for that how, how did you how do you experience it Kat? spirituality in the workplace and maybe in contrast to what you were able to do together it's something that's deeply vulnerable and I don't think you're supposed to be vulnerable at work you're supposed to be confident and uh especially as a facilitator like I think there's this image of facilitators being like really confident, really charismatic, but there's also this like really deep vulnerability that's required. Um, And I think there's this parallel between how we bring spirituality into the workplace and how we bring vulnerability into the workplace and how that translates to um, allowing vulnerability in the workplace where it's really required, which is in the focus groups and the interviews and Mm. the support spaces where uh, we're doing care work. You know, we really built a foundation of facilitation around a framework of care work um, and specifically T for T or trans for trans care work. And harm reduction care work. I need to hear, we need to hear more about this. I, I realize I could just, I can, I can hear all the people in the future listening to this being like, Nadia, <laughs> what is care work? What do they mean? <laughs> can you break it down a little bit for people who maybe don't have, have never heard that phrase, but are probably very interested in maybe questions of accessibility? Mm. Mm. Um, how does that, how does one lead from the other or how do you, what was your approach like? I think like our framework of care work, harm reduction, and T for T or trans for trans all came from the same place of thinking, what extra labor do we need to do to make sure that people feel supported in this space and feel supported to be vulnerable in this space? And feel supported to be vulnerable in this space, which we specifically want to create outside of the white cis hetero patriarchy, which is, um, again, like a very scary space to exist in potentially. Um, And so we thought a lot about the potential intensity of the conversations that might arise. Um, We thought a lot about how to support people as they talk through and work through trauma. Um, And so both Ty and I uh, took mental health first aid training. um, And in addition to that, uh, for the focus groups, not the one-on-one interviews though, um, we had a a separate Zoom room that was for a, a support space. Um, And we had a support worker in that space um, who was ready and available if anybody 
uh, was re-traumatized or triggered through the conversations that they were engaging in or listening to. Um, we also set up frameworks at the beginning to talk about, um, you know, if you are going to talk about things that might be uh, traumatizing to maybe try and give like a heads up. Um, and after the support spaces, or sorry, after the focus groups ended, um, the support workers stayed on for an extra hour uh, with the researchers gone outside of a research context um, to Ooh. debrief with anybody who was interested in uh, continuing the conversation or debriefing the conversation outside of the research context. That space also became a community building space, like support workers that stayed on um, would talk about how people would connect after and like share contact information. Oh, cool. Uh, which was cool. I have a few additional And that was ways. happening outside of your, like you were gone. Yeah. So you never witnessed any of that? No. Brilliant. I have a few more things that I want to add to how we built care work, harm reduction, and transfer trends relationality into the ways that we facilitated. And this is, this piece is like one of my favorite facil facilitation tidbits. I would say, which is to allow, to build the amount of risk-taking that people need to do to answer a question uh, in, in a group. And especially for a setting where people are gonna talk about some of the most traumatizing experiences in their lives, which is, you know, their legal issues. So really starting with a question that people, our first question was, what are the most important challenges in your communities? So people could answer that question without having to talk about themselves. Mm -hmm. so it's a lower risk question mm -hmm. um I mean our first our actual first question is like what brought you here today which is nice. an easy yeah. yeah a nice easy one to like ease people into the conversation then we like up the heat a little bit what are the most important challenges to your communities and then we move into like do people want to talk about their legal issues and how they navigated them mm -hmm. so that that evolution of risk taking allows people to then also build relationships with each other before they start answering some of the more risky questions. To notice Something. how people react to their answers, mm -hmm. to gauge how they're gonna be received here. To, so that we could show them that this was a space where like their vulnerabilities could be supported. Mm. Um, the other thing is, and Kat and Jillian and I had long conversations about this. When we first started the focus groups, the way that it ran was that, you know, Kat and I would be the facilitators and we would ask a question and then people would answer one by one and we would respond. They would say, a participant would answer, we would respond to them. Then another participant would answer, we would respond to them. And it wasn't a conversation, right? It was, it was like, yeah, yeah, it's like a, a, a hub, a wheel exactly, with a hub. Yeah. Exactly. And our response would be like, you know, thank you. Right. Uh, thank you for sharing that. Which is a closing comment. So wow. that, was, that okay. was our first focus group. And we were like, Brilliant. we were like, that's icky. We were like, that's not the vibe. That's not the point of what we're doing here. So we had like lengthy conversations about how do we ask questions and how do we build a space where people feel like they can talk to each other? That's, that is the, that is the question we, everybody wants to know the answer to. Although I will notice that I've said that three times already in this podcast. 
<laughs> There's lots of questions people want the answer to. Yeah, that's right. And you and, have them. <laughs> and these were subtle changes. They ended up being very hmm. subtle changes that made a huge difference. Hmm. Okay. So instead of saying like, uh, oh, this is going to sound so mechanical. This is awful. Uh, so what we, uh, what we shifted to in our response um, was first to like provide empathy um, and then to ask opening questions like, has anybody else experienced something like this? Or has anybody else experienced something different? And um, what kind of similarities do you see? And those questions would invite people in. And we found that after asking those questions once or twice, uh, participants just started to do that. We didn't have to ask anymore. People just anticipated that, that. They understood that that was allowed here. This is the, what the space wants. Exactly. So we would say that for the first one or two questions, and then it would just flow from there. And that became like such an important tool for facilitating the kind of groups we wanted to facilitate. Did you ever find the groups? Um, the reason I think people use the hub, the wheel in the hub, is to control the conversation, the direction of the conversation, partly maybe if they're nervous, but also to stay on topic. Did you ever find yourself drifting? I don't think so. Right. Kat, do you think that we did? It's a it's an audio podcast, so Ty was saying no, <laughs> shaking the head no. True. <laughs> I was. <laughs> you know, Ty, I think you and I had very different experiences of this, especially in our one-on-one -on -one interviews. Um, mm. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. part of my approach to the one-on-one -on -one interviews um, was really to like explore deeply the conversation that the participant wanted to have um, and to guide it with these questions, but to, uh, you know, I remember there was uh, one interview I did where I asked one of the first questions, the second question, and they talked for about 45 minutes. Um, and there could have been moments to redirect it, but um, as somebody who really grounds her facilitation in community work um, and care work, I think, um, one of one of the things that happens or can happen in these facilitated spaces, I think, um, and we can talk about whether this is uh, something that we want to redirect the energy of, but um, you know, with a lot of trans people, I think with a lot of people who are systemically marginalized, we don't have spaces to have these conversations. Um, communities can be sparse. These conversations are intense and difficult to have and facilitate beyond maybe like one-on-one -on -one contexts. Um, and even then, uh, most people don't have spaces in which they can express these truths and realities and experiences in their life. And so when, <clears throat> uh, and I found this facilitating support groups too, um, when providing a space in which people, uh, like a safe, a safe or safer space in which people can uh, talk about intense experiences, 
um, they will often, some people will like deeply engage with that opportunity. Um, and like really, um, yeah, really deeply engaged with that opportunity. And, uh, I think in, um, one-on-one -on -one interviews, uh, the context can be different than in focus groups because we want to consider, have considerations about how much space people are taking up, but, um, it's challenging because when somebody is speaking about this really intense conversation, uh, it feels not great to be like, okay, we need to stop and move on, um, or we need to redirect this, or uh, thank yeah. you so much for sharing what you shared. I need to interrupt you uh, because you are not stopping talking. Um, so uh, I think it Did shows- Did you find you had long interviews then? We had interviews that ranged from, I think, 45 minutes to about two hours. Okay, okay. So you just wouldn't sometimes get all, with, all the way through the questions? Yeah, we would prioritize questions sometimes um, and think about, like, based on the conversation that's happening, uh, what are the most interesting or where is the direction that the conversation is heading? My question, my follow-up question, Kat, is it goes in two directions. One is about the data and how you, whether you were thinking about, well, okay, this is what we're trying to learn, or if you were just like wide open and kept your scope open until afterwards. But then my other question is with this technique of just letting people say what they need to say, didn't that burn you out eventually? Or is that, is that part of how you, how you had to, to back off a little bit? Yes. And yes, I think so. Um, it's so generous. But it's so intense or it can so be so intense. intense. Yeah. Um, I would but... say that's, I would just say that's another way that this work is care work. So many people in interviews were like, this feels like therapy. Wow. I also, my approach is different than Kat's. Okay. Um, so... I have done research interviews. I had done research interviews prior to this project and I spent so long looking at those research interviews that I did for my master's being like, I wish that I had asked these questions. I sat ah. so long in that feeling. And so I brought that into the interviews and focus groups that I did. Um, and I made sure to ask the burning questions that I knew I was going to have later. So I think that my my framework was more like um I considered both how do I make sure this is the conversation that this person wants to have and also that we're getting the information that's helpful so and there's a tension between those things sometimes um and it was all about managing that tension um but I definitely did find ways to ask the questions that I wanted and often people were like happy to talk about any aspect of the situation. Um, or people would just be like, I don't want to talk about that, which is also fine. Um, but... Are you, you mean, when you say they're, they were happy to talk about any aspect, meaning like, okay, they're going to open this scope and they would allow you to guide them through that territory. Yeah. So for example, if someone was talking about employment issues, they were having um, I would start to ask really specific questions about those employment issues to get like a better sense of what the story was to make sure that I had like a linear understanding of the story that I could then write about. And they didn't um, mind clarifying. No. 
and there was even in context like that where people would be like this feels like it's so nice to have this space to talk um and that's really good to know yeah so I do think that it's possible to do both at once and I think but I'm curious because Kat and I disagree about this and yes, we both, it's wonderful I'm like ooh, having two people on a podcast yeah. is exciting <laughs> uh I have a question for you Ty um which is how do you balance sometimes those like very specific questions to me uh, almost feel extractive um, and how do you balance that extractiveness or maybe feeling of extractiveness uh, like how do you walk that line between that and like this feels like therapy and it feels really good like how, what do you do to make it the one experience and less so the other that's such a good question I think I mean I really hope that I'm doing like the better experience which is like this feels like care work and therapy um I I don't know. It's just like, you know, when you have a conversation with a friend and you're like, you want to know more about what they're talking about. It just feels like you're talking to a friend, but you have a guide. So many times it just felt like I was talking to a friend, especially because like in many ways where we were in community with the people that we were talking with. Um, but it is weird because you build these relationships with people. So like oftentimes I would turn off the recorder and I can I know this happened to you too. And we would just keep talking and people would be like, you need to come to my part of the country. Like mm -hmm. you would love it here, like this kind of stuff. And because of research ethics, I technically have to like never talk to that person again, unless they talk to me um, or like, just like not identify them in any way, basically, because they're supposed to be anonymous in this research study. Um, so there is, we're building relationships, but also not for the long term, not over time. Yeah. There are these like wow. sparks of relationships. Um, and, and I think because of, uh, because of the trust that the community and the participants put in the research team, uh, partly because like our research team was entirely comprised of, of trans people, um, partly because, um, you know, we put a lot of care into the, into the design of the research um, and the focus groups. Um, a lot of people had almost like, I don't know if you experienced this tie, um, but I experienced this with some participants where there was like almost immediate trust um, placed in me. Mm. Um, and so it's like, the relationship is so short, um, but it can be so intense because there's so much trust and openness in it. I also... This, we did this research through a research ethics board at Carleton University. So there are certain ethical frameworks that we have to abide by legally. Can you tell us a little bit about those? I think people won't know what, what that even might entail. So um, certain, 
participants have to sign a whole form with like very legal language in it that we had to go through with them before. Mm. Um, the form outlined like the details of the research, their rights as a participant, um, which included like their ability to, uh, what, now my head is like, what is this word? Not to answer questions. Yeah, not answer questions, withdraw from the study at any point in time. Yeah. Um, well, withdraw from the study up until a certain point in time and we gave them the date. Um, it also outlined their ability to provide feedback on our report. So we sent out the report to everyone uh, before putting the final version into translation and graphic design so people could provide feedback. Um, so there's this very like strict framework for doing research in the setting. Now we're starting to do more work. So we're gonna be doing a series of strategic plan community consultations. And we shared that call for participants with the research participants from this past study. Um, and in this case, so that means we get to re-engage with them and we get to re-engage with them um, in a much less formal setting. Uh, okay, so now, and then the community building can sort of thicken. Yeah. And they've had this private time with the support workers as well. So their networks are mm -hmm. possibly deepening without so knowledge. So it, it's a slow process that also has to like understand the legal frameworks of the different kinds of work that we're doing. So the legal framework of doing work associated with a university uh, versus you know, the much more expansive framework of doing work just as a community organization, uh, doing strategic plan consultations. So interesting. I would love to talk more about how we're engaging the community for these strategic consultations, if you're interested, because I think we're doing it in a really cool very, way. Very, very interested. Um, so we just put out our call for participants, um, and as part of the call, uh, we have an option, um, which is, would you like to participate on a committee uh, of like five to eight people to discuss strategic planning and advocacy work that Justice Trans could be doing? Um, and, you know, we'll uh, compensate you with an honorarium of this much for your time, and these are what the commitments look like. Um, and then as a second option, we have, I would like to facilitate a uh, like committee meeting. Um, so we're, we're recruiting community-based facilitators to run um, meetings in sort of a hub and spoke model. Um, so each of these community facilitators after facilitating their community uh, committee meeting will come back together with us and report back together. Um, and then we'll synthesize all of that knowledge together. So they'll get to both facilitate and then participate um, in the process. Beautiful, what a beautiful plan. I bet, especially having already been exposed to you and building that trust, um, people are gonna be so excited to find out who else is out there. Like they must've, I, I imagine they encountered you and were like, this is magic, this is magical. And, to, and then to find out, oh, this is, I could do this, other people could do this. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not, mm -hmm. it's, it's not um, so far out of bounds. It's, that is just so interesting. I'm, I'm curious, I wanna kind of come back to the question of information that you sort of touched on a little bit there, Ty, like you're, you're letting go, I hear you letting go of control in this process from one to the next. What, um, how do you manage that kind of information when it comes back? Like, uh, 
yeah, what happens? Like, do, you can't do the same kind of formal analysis, I guess, because you're not controlling it in the same way. That's just a guess. We are still able to do uh, some qualitative and thematic analysis on it, which is what we did. Um, so we used a software program called Envivo, um, which lets you import recordings or transcripts or other documents and um, tag bits of information with like a keyword. Um, and there's lots of different approaches to how you can uh, go through. This is a process called coding. Um, Wait, hold up, Pat. I just, just want to say like Nadia's face is lighting up so much right now. And I, I, I just want listeners to know that that's happening while you're talking about this. Oral research is, I'm so curious, right? I have so many, I didn't even, I didn't even quite re realize that we were going to make that connection until now. So I just, I'm, mm. I want to hear everything now. Um, so what we did was we took all of our transcripts and we also took all of the comments from our survey. Um, and we went through this process called coding where uh, time myself and a team of research assistants uh, went through all of the transcripts, all of the comments, um, and highlighted different sections and coded them, said, this is relevant to this. Hmm. Um, there are different approaches to how you can code uh, a transcript or piece of information. Um, we used a process called open coding, which goes back to the uh, letting go of control of the process, um, where we allowed our uh, research team to sort of create and use any code uh, that they felt was appropriate. Um, and codes get reused, um, and you can see summaries of which codes are the most common, which ones are the least common, um, and then you can Ooh, go that's through... That's a meta level of your whole research, what the researchers mm. saw mm. as relevant. Wow. And I assume um, those are all also trans community members, the, the research assistants. Yes. And that's really great to get that lens. So then we can identify what sort of the most common themes are across conversations. Um, and for example, one of the most common themes that showed up uh, was harassment and discrimination. And under that, we broke it down into like transphobia, uh, which is like discrimination against trans people. Um, we broke it down into like trans misogyny, which is discrimination specifically against trans women uh, and non-binary people, some non-binary people. Um, and we broke it down into like racism and homophobia and fat phobia and ableism and classism. And then we're able to go um, when we're writing a, a report, the, the interesting part from this is not to say uh, 37 participants talked about harassment and discrimination, but to say, like, participants consistently talked about harassment and discrimination. And then we can look at that tag, and we can see all of the quotes of participants um, talking about harassment and discrimination and find, um, find narratives that we can share that really emphasize the experiences of the participants. And also identify common experiences. Uh, because they're all like put together in that way. Nadia, I'm wondering, wow. were you asking about how we're letting go of control specifically in the strategic planning process though? Yeah, when you're letting others facilitate 
Mm-hmm. You don't know what's going to happen. You really but don't know what's going to happen. We've done that already. We did that with oh. the uh, the groups that we facilitated with those community organizations. Ah, so, okay. Yeah, like uh, Edmonton Two Spirit Society, Black Queer Youth Collective, Rainbow Refugee. and They Elevate facilitated Equity. their own groups. We were just there to record the conversation, but they facilitated okay. it. Um, so we already have a framework for doing that. And it's so cool to see how different people facilitate things. Yeah. And the thing is like, I would be at the groups and if they weren't asking questions that I wanted them to ask, I would just ask the question. Okay. And that that protects the the data collection aspect of it. And you found that this, the care work, the depth, the, that community relationality that you're talking about, that was consistent even with other facilitators. Did you have like yes, a, a because deep training process? No. No, we just like know that the people that are doing this work care about the people they're doing the work with. Like all of these are community-based organizations. That's an incredible leap of faith. I don't think it is huh. um, because we are in community and have relationships with all of these people. From before. Like we've built relationships with these people. We've built relationships with these organizations. We trust them. Um, They are invested in the outcome of the project. They are invested in the specific outcomes of the focus groups that they're running because it provides an opportunity for like a specific set of voices and experiences to be heard. And we also gave them the control to be like, if you think these are inappropriate questions, you can reword them, you can change them, you can ask them something different. Um, And generally, I don't think that happened. Um, I think the some of the questions got reworded a bit um, or or contextualized in some of the groups differently. Um, But but that really, all that did was add greater depth to the conversation because it was, uh, it was not just our perspective anymore that was guiding the conversation or that was facilitating the conversation. Nadia, it's interesting to me because um, so much of maybe what surprises you about the work that we do is I feel we're very comfortable with letting go of control. Like, I don't think we have any issues with it. Mm. Um, I just find we did so much work this year and the thought of the amount of work that would go in to control every single aspect yeah of it, yeah yeah like, it's too much yeah yeah and, <laughs> so, and, and it's almost like it's almost built into the matter at hand like what mm-hmm. is the, what is the problem with justice and these particular communities and how how is control being enacted as mm. violence that you mm. almost couldn't prepare a process that was Mm. too intense that way exactly like so many of the conversations that we had with people were about how the ways the system controls us was completely inaccessible or like these labyrinthine mechanisms to address your legal issues were completely inaccessible and these are obviously like mechanisms of control even uh, bullying is a control. Yeah. So just like let, com- letting a much more open process evolve felt like an important counter to the content that we are talking about. I, I also think that, and Ty and I have talked about this, you know, that really intense, strong desire and need for rigidity and control uh, is like really rooted 
in white supremacy and in patriarchy and in uh, all of the gender norms Mm -hmm. and to let go of control and instead focus on trust Mm. um, is maybe like a bit of, I don't know. It's a, you need a lot of trust to do it. Yeah, Um, I felt like we could do that because we were doing this work in community though. I agree. I sense it between you too. I would also say like, there were definitely times when people would say things where we were like, that's not okay. Okay, Um, so there were boundaries. (laughs) Oh, I mean, it's it's difficult to engage in a conversation around uh, problematic. Is that the word I want to use? I mean, it was problematic uh, language, <laughs> uh, in particular language. I think. Um, and like deeply held beliefs. Um, And as a researcher, as a research facilitator, Mm. it is not really, it doesn't feel appropriate um, to ask intimate questions for research. And then like comment on how- And then say you're not, you can't say that here. Yeah. (laughs) It certainly doesn't. That's actually maybe one of the big differences between general community facilitation Mm -hmm. and this kind of research because you've opened it up and said, what we want is the imprint of your voice. Mm -hmm. Yes. As Mm -hmm. it is. And that's another way that you have to let go of control. Like you don't get to set um, the tone or content of the conversation, you just get to ask the questions mm-hmm. um, and like allow allow things to emerge, like the five of wands. There it is. <laughs> Can I tell you a thing I'm really interested in, Ty, that we weren't able to do as researchers? Yeah. Uh, I'm really interested in how sharing our experiences could have shifted the conversations. Um, if we could have opened up about our experiences uh, that were shared or similar rather than, um, and I'm bringing this up because uh, I feel like sometimes there was this expectation that we were there to ask questions and guide the conversation and passively, fairly passively observe. Um, You know, the like classic view of the researcher is that they are like, um objective and neutral and we talked a lot about how we aren't neutral we're Uh, inside researchers we are inside researchers we are not neutral entities um and I wonder about like we talked about what bringing ourselves to the workplace shifted in our workplace culture uh but it felt like we were never able to like bring ourselves fully to the facilitation role. Yeah. Um, it was possible to like deeply, deeply engage 
um, and engage with like a lot of your being, but like you have a specific role and that role is to guide and observe, not to participate. I do think it's like a much more feminist, even trans feminist research methodology to bring your own experiences and yeah, which I have, I think I, as a researcher, like I trained at McGill. um, So I have a very classic like perspective on how research facilitation should be done. Um, But I think that that would be very good to bring into the facilitation that we do in the future. And whatever research facilitation we do in the future will likely be less formal because it probably won't be through a university. Yeah, I don't know. I guess we'll see. (laughs) I'm excited to see. Would you intentionally avoid doing it with the university again? I think it would really depend on what the research was and what we wanted it to achieve because there are benefits to uh, having the association with Carleton so we can publish in academic journals. Um, There's a certain credence that this data has with government officials and funders because Mm. of its association. Um, So because this this work is partly for our communities and partly, this work is fully for our communities, but partly it is for our communities because of the ways that it will impact government officials, policymakers and funders. Um, And it, yeah, if there's research that we wanna do in the future that we're like, this is really just for our community, then I don't think, and we don't need to influence these high level decision makers, um, then I don't think it's necessary to do it through a university or through a university research ethics board. Kat, do you have thoughts on that? I agree. <laughs> I'm just like, it depends how big the grant is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, and how long it yeah. takes because- and how getting, long like, it takes. Getting approval through a research ethics board, that was like the biggest hurdle, I think. It was the biggest hurdle we had it. Uh, and I think it, it, in a way, impacted the- intensity with which we engaged in conversations um or not the intensity but the um like how frequently we were having focus groups and interviews where we would have like three or four of them a week some weeks um and I think some of that was like the time crunch because ethics just got like delayed and delayed and delayed and um This is one of the challenges with uh, academic ethics, I think, is that there's this real desire to police insider research and community-based research. Um, And uh, we experienced like a lot of questions about safety, if I recall, Um, and our colleagues who were also doing a research project at the same time at an organization called Transask in Saskatchewan, um, which is a province in Canada, uh, also encountered just a like tremendous amount of delays because of the ethics process. And it's Mm. this like intense bureaucratic process um, in which you have to 
uh, fully design your project and talk about all of the minutiae of how you're going to collect and look at and store uh, data or information or transcripts. Yeah, that's that was finally how we decided there was no way the time zone could go near a university because we didn't know the answers to those questions mm -hmm. and didn't want to. Yeah, and you wanted, uh, it, it really does not lend itself towards an emergent research process, which I know was definitely like your goal with time zone. Um, and maybe now that you've had your time with the ethics board, maybe now you have questions that you need to put into an emergent framework. Well, I think like the strategic consultations need to be an emergent framework. Uh, but this this was this was like a a very serious legal needs assessment. Absolutely. So and those, <laughs> yeah, and and I really hear what you're saying in terms of changing policy to be able to go back and say no, we did cross all those T's. Yeah, like there's because we especially as like trans people need to make sure that we're presenting ourselves in a way that that people Airtight. think yeah. Like yep. that they can't question it. Yep. That's why our 703 responses are great because that's like, that's a great that's a end. stunning number. Yeah. yeah, it really, and it, yeah, it is. It's a great way to, to begin a conversation about the need, it, need it is, for a needs assessment. It is so interesting how people's opinions about our organization change immensely once they hear that, that number. number. Yeah. Yeah. Like we what a all... gift. Now that brings me to back to the spiritual question. <laughs> it really does. Like what a gift. There's no way to have predicted or, you know, at, at any given time, any organization has no time to send out a survey. At any given, you know, like this moment, that moment, this person, that ED, all these things come into play and they fit together perfectly. And the delay with the ethics board before you sent the survey, all these things mm. somehow must have some some you know, kind of divine coordination has to happen. Um, yeah, it was it was really beautiful, and I think a lot of it was. Uh, so, in addition to tarot, I also uh, read runes, um, and there's a rune that represents harvest, um, and what it represents is just reward for right work. Mm. Um, you know, you, you till the fields, you take care of the fields. Um, you hope there's no hail. Uh, you prepare for when there is. There's inevitably hail. <laughs> and, and at the end of the season, you harvest Party. and have a bounty. Mm. Amazing. And you pulled that rune. No, it's just a rune that it's I. It's just think a about rune. A it's just a known. Okay, thank you. <laughs> uh, this is completely like new information to me. <laughs> How have you not shared this before? Unbelievable! And we spend uh, what you would call embarrassing amount of time on Zoom together every week. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm a mystery. Yes, I. I, I get that. <laughs> You get that from this first encounter. This is this is extraordinary. What you've done here is is game changing. I'm sure, and I hope Earth Earth 
shaping so terra so. Wow. terra reforming i really do hope so um it's interesting you say that nadia because our as an organization our definition of justice is the ability to create the worlds you want to live in which is that's literally earth shaping yeah mm-hmm. yeah i feel it very strongly i find this conversation extremely moving like mm-hmm. I, I just feel like it's obvious that you've dug very deep to make this happen. And I can only imagine the personal cost you both must have, I don't want to say paid, but undertaken to make you it know, happen. We've learned a lot from it. Um, part of what's come out of the intensity of the project and the work that we did last year was an organizational policy that we're piloting right now um, that lets us work 80 to 100% of our hours and still receive full pay. Um, Just as both like an acknowledgement that people don't work eight hours solid a day. And if you do, you have like zero capacity to take on new work when it comes in uh, and you're just gonna burn out. Um, especially doing this intense emotional work, um, which is so often associated with the work that we're doing. That is an incredible policy. I love it in terms of temporality. So Mm, that you don't control, you're not controlling the future. It's not always this kind of capitalist, you know, bent of wagering on a future and predicting if you're knowing what's going to happen. It's like, ah, we don't know. We really seriously thought about this policy versus a four-day workweek policy. Yeah, that's and Because a four-day workweek policy is basically 80% of your time. And we landed on this because this way you can work six hours a day or you can take one day off a week. Mm. Um, or you can work your full hours if you're feeling up to it, but you never have to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because sometimes you need to. And then it also... You don't have the feeling of scarcity when you have worked your full hours. It's like, mm-hmm. it's in this, ra- I belong to this range. It's not like I'm now in overtime. I think psychologically that. And another way as like uh, an organization to let go of control. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like as a manager, a way to let go of control too, just to be like, yeah, these like trust, like trust that people are doing this work because they want to. So is the org, you, you were the first two full-time employees. And so actually Jillian was the first employee. I was the second employee and Kat was the third. And is it growing now? No, we are. Oh, you are the three. Okay. We are intentionally keeping it small um, for sustainability sake and like understanding that trust takes a long time to build. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are big organizational changes coming. Um, Jillian and I are both going to law school. Yes, this is my news for you, Nadia. Um, Whoa. Kat Kat is going to take... Yes, so we can talk more about that another time. But Kat is going to take over the executive director role for me. Wow. Um, and she's going to do like such an incredible job. I'm <laughs> so excited. Uh, and we're hiring two new people. So if you know anybody, I don't know when this will be released. Are you and Jillian going to law school together? No, we're going to different law schools, but we will be talking. I mean, <laughs> I would love to talk with them about like our experiences at law school, especially well, taking all of the information that we've learned from this research. Exactly. And then, That's exactly. what I was wondering. And also what you've learned about how to support each other in something very intense. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious about that. We kind of left it behind a little while ago, but I'd love to just pick it up as we maybe, I don't know, I don't want to wear you down. I could, I have a, I could just ask questions. This is an incredible interview. This but, is such um, an energizing interview. Is, so okay, that's great. Good, good. good. 
I'm I'm curious about your internal relationships and you know if you have any stories or if there's anything that's not too personal that that you could share about how you developed your working relationship how you developed your the agreements you were working under if you're spending a lot of this this kind of <laughs> embarrassing amount of time together how do you manage the personal inside of that the conflict inside of that so I would just start with being like we were really lucky because we didn't really have any conflict. We've had uh, conflict. <laughs> Here's one now. Internal, internal <laughs> conflict. No, we've had conflict. We've had like differences of opinion. We've yeah, like but, talked okay. things out. Okay, so we will disagree with each other, but it's never like a full-blown conflict. Why not? Maybe because I squash all dissent. <laughs> <laughs> You squash all dissent. I, I just <laughs> so the <laughs> no, I definitely impossible I to definitely believe. That. Don't do that. I don't do that. <laughs> um, we're a really collaborative workplace, so there's always like the opportunity for people to share that their opinion is different. And the reason I say we haven't had conflict, Kat, is because I've just heard other EDs at other organizations talk about conflict that's impossible to resolve, intractable. Yeah, just that lasts for months that sounds like so draining and we were lucky that not, nothing like that happened but we did have a healthy amount of conflict hmm. I think um yeah I think a big part of it is how we work together as a remote team all of us are in different locations across Canada and we just work from home um and I think there's a lot of opportunity in remote work to be very remote. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and we work really hard to, or at least I think I have worked really hard. I think we all have um, to build trust and intimacy and vulnerability um, through the shared experience of working at Justice Trans and working through this intense period of work and working through uh, this intense kind of work. Um, which like, maybe that's not true because that kind of work can also just like drive conflict. Absolutely. Um, but uh, we have we like- What did we do? I'm just like, what did we do? How did we pull it off? We did, uh, <laughs> we have like, little daily rituals like we have a check-in every day where we just like have coffee check in with each other talk about any work items that need to be talked about and talk about, about dogs talk about dogs when they show up um <laughs> there was a cat on the camera this morning it was lovely um and it's you know it, it goes back to that like letting go of control I think a little bit because that kind of meeting could really easily be seen as like organizational a waste, waste of time mm -hmm. that's like three people for 15 up to, to up to an hour if we have a lot to talk about or if it's like a Friday and we're just chit-chatting which sometimes happens um but it's allowed us to like really get to know each other in this like way that you would in an office um and build some of that trust and build some of that intimacy and I would also say we were the first full-time staff at the org 
Um, and so we got to set the organization's values early on in the process. Hmm. So the three of us sat down together and decided on some core values for the organization that include like status for all, sex work is work, um, hmm. land back, like prison abolition, defund the police, et cetera, et cetera. Like these are all of our values. Um, but also they include values like um, no exploitative labor practices and that we encourage criticism from our community. Um, <laughs> so we got to set these values together. And I think looking back at that, I think that's a really powerful way to build organizational culture and trust. I, I think that value of like we encourage and accept and will adopt to community feedback and criticism regardless of how that criticism is framed um really drove the culture of like disagreement is not conflict mm. conflict so often starts from disagreement and disagreement doesn't need to be conflict so yeah maybe we haven't had a lot of conflict um, <laughs> maybe we've just had disagreements and uh, differences of opinions that we've been able to like respectfully talk through with one another um, and like same thing with our community when our community has provided us uh, you know yeah, part of the part of the reason we're engaging in this huge strategic consultation or the significant strategic consultation is because some of our our community consultants who were part of that sort of uh, the research council the community research council were like um you did a good job engaging the community but you need to do way more mm -hmm. um and we learned a lot like it was it was mm -hmm. a really hard piece of feedback as somebody who like grounds herself in community to be like like yeah you're trying but you're not there yet um is like intense feedback and so ty and i also have learned an incredibly valuable lesson, two valuable lessons. The first is sitting with silence uh, and not being afraid of silence in focus groups and interviews um, and with one another. Um, and what's the just, other one? I'm time? just healthily not in, like I'm not in so hard right now. That's a really big one. That's a very rare thing. Um, yeah, silence is scary mm -hmm. uh, because it feels like it goes on forever. <laughs> and sometimes in our focus groups, like we would ask a question and we would just sit there and wait for someone to respond. And people would be like, this is awkward. And mm -hmm. we'd just be like, <laughs> we just nod and still wait. Mm -hmm. And then it wasn't awkward anymore. And it's well, deep, it's just deepening and deepening and deepening when the thing that gets said isn't to fill the space, it's mm -hmm. bringing exactly. out the space. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Kat, what was the second one? I forgot it, but then I remembered it. It was um, just to sit with things. You know, we, as soon as Ty and I are having a conversation, not as soon as, but like we get to a point in a conversation whether it's about critical feedback 
whether it's about um, something we're having differing opinions about, um, whether it's something else. It's like, let's just like sit on this. Absolutely everything pretty much that we can do can wait one day for us to just sit and reflect a bit. And like- That's world changing right there. Reflection can be part of the labor of work, of your employment, mm. I think. Like if mm. you if you take time as part of your work to reflect on it so that you're not doing it outside of work, um, you know, that's really powerful, I think. It's a big shift in how we approach work is like you're allowed to rest and reflect sometimes and think about these big questions and big challenges. Wow. You'll, you'll have that with you forever. I wonder if you'll ever be able to work without it now, now that you have, now that you've had it. I'm ruined. You're, yeah. <laughs> or saved or it's hard to say. <laughs> Changed though, I can imagine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. I, I mean, I'm just, I'm so excited. This is just, it's so incredible what you've been able to do here. I'm feeling emotional because yeah. we're thinking about workplace transitions mm -hmm. and like, it's just, yeah, it's been, it's so nice to talk about this past year and just the way that you've distilled our lessons just now, Kat, is so, thank you for doing that. I, I feel like I can like really hold on to them now. For viewers, we're making little hearts on the screen. <laughs> oh, that's their little hearts. Yeah, they're little K-pop hearts. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. Congratulations. I'm uh I'm also I'm I'm just a little blown away that you just that you've engaged in this the way that you've engaged with it because it feels so mundane the work that we've done <laughs> does it like it's just like God. this is like this like a is a revelation been, to me this has been the daily grind has right. been like yes doing this research and facilitating these conversations and developing these policies um and yeah it's just like it's just like what we do and it um yeah, it's really special to hear that uh, and to share these lessons to have an impact beyond just like our team. This oh, is yeah. the magic of facilitation. Yeah. I'm telling you, this is why Nadia is one of my facilitation heroes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, as I'm listening, there's at least three orgs. I'm like, I got to edit this before I'm even ready to post it just so I can send it to them. They need to hear it now. Yeah. And then for me, I mean, I just like, I'm listening to this and I'm, I'm thinking of my own practice, right? I'm thinking about my own like overfilled um, plans and, and, and my own um, tendency to, to push participants and into, into states that they may not be ready for. Like, I'm just, I'm learning so much as I'm listening and which is why I'm doing the podcast, <laughs> you know, <laughs> is because this, the expertise in this field is spread so wide. Like every 
every time we work, we learn so much. Mm-hmm. It's like, a, it's like a, almost like a given in this practice. Um, and I just, I don't know, there's, there's what you're saying and there's how it feels to talk to you, which is like a whole different level. There's a resonance, there's a tone in your voice that's just like, so it's very humble and very, very strong. Like I, like super confident. Like there's this feeling like we did it. We did it. Like I got, I've got this feeling, but it's all coming across like real humble. Like it's like, like, yeah, we had to work our way through it. And yeah, we, you know, we, we learned it through experience and we learned it the hard way. And like, I get that. I, I hear you saying that, but the feeling is this like pillar of, of strength that I really feel. I think the impact of this work like is yet to be felt. The report still needs to be published. It's like written. it's written. It's just in design and translation right now. Wow. So, and we felt like murmurs of the impact. Uh, the few times we've presented about this report and presented about our findings, um, just the I think three things happen. Uh, people are like, wow, this is really cool. There needs to be more trans-led research. Um, People are like, wow, this is super impactful and this is gonna be really useful for uh, the community. And people are like, "Uh, wow, I didn't know that these issues I had were so systemic. Um, and that last piece for me has been one of the most impactful pieces of this process, mm. both of facilitation and data analysis and reporting and presenting back to the community has been like through all of those stages. That last piece, Kat, is so interesting too, because for a long time, as we were putting together the report and the presentations on the report, it felt like the report is full of so much trauma. Mm. Like it is not easy to engage with. It is very, very difficult. And so there was a sense, you know, that Kat and I had that this report doesn't feel like it's for two-spirit and trans communities because it's too hard for us to read. Mm -hmm. And then as we started to present it, the response was actually the opposite. The response was- They were so hungry to read it. It's so nice to know that I'm not alone. Yeah, Yeah, I can imagine. And we had that in the focus groups too. That's really um, beautiful. As, as conversations emerged, people would be like, wow, I didn't realize that this issue I had was even a legal issue uh, or that other trans people had it. Wow. Or that like the issue isn't me, it's the system. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if that itself kind of already mitigates the re-traumatization that might be happening because it's actually going into that it's almost like backfilling those experiences well, that's one of the most powerful parts of work like this is the way that it exposes these issues as systemic mm-hmm. and that not only that not only does it expose these issues as systemic it also provides the momentum for mobilization of community members to be like we can work together on changing this yep not only is it not my fault, not only am I not alone, but we're in this together. Mm-hmm. And we have some, and I think the, the way you've approached it with so much formality also gives people a sense that we have access to power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like if we want to do research this way, we can. Yeah. 
and within, also, within us we have it we have the knowledge and the know-how and there's also the sense not only like are we not alone in this but there is like a whole organization out there that's working on it yeah which is also pretty damn cool to learn more about creative facilitation go to my on-demand facilitation platform facilitate.toolsy.ca that's facilitate.toolsi.ca we'll see you there